Welcome to Work-Life Confidential with your host, Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Work-Life Confidential gets to the heart of uncomfortable, sometimes taboo topics. Bosses and coworkers behaving badly, other workplace stresses, gender, race, money, and their effect on everything that happens at work and in your life outside of work. Together, we'll find the answers you've been looking for. Now, here is Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Welcome to Work Life Confidential. I'm Ken Dolan Delvecchio, and our subject today is racism, sexism, and homophobia at work. And I'm going to start us off with a quick story. And the story took place a little while back at a family therapy conference. And at this conference, there was a presentation by three women who are faculty at the University of Florida. And they are three white women, and they are doing a research project that looks at the ways that the students in the family therapy program treat the male and female faculty differently. And what they've been observing is that the students will approach the female faculty members and they'll ask them to renegotiate grades. And they'll also do things like just walk into their offices when they're when the faculty member or the professor is just sitting there doing some work, student will just walk right in. And one of the presenters said, my husband is also on the faculty in our family therapy program. And he and I were in our separate offices one day with our doors closed. And all of a sudden, a student who I'd never met before opened my door and asked me with great urgency, can you ask your husband to speak with me because he's behind closed doors? So a student who she didn't even know came and asked her rather than knocking on her husband's door. So they're telling this story. And there is there are present in the room a number of very senior people in the family therapy field. And one of them pipes in and he says, he says, you know what? I don't want to jump to the conclusion that this is about gender. Because when I look at you three women, you're so kind and you're so engaging and you seem so very approachable. Couldn't it be that the students are just experiencing that and they're coming to you because you just seem so welcoming? And then another member of the very, very elder statesman of the family therapy field, this time a, an African-American man, he joins the conversation. He says, look, let me ask you a question are all of your faculty members white? And the women say, yeah. And he says, well, I kind of figured that, and here's why. We have the same thing going on, it's very similar, but it's even worse because the faculty of color will come to their offices and we will find students in our office using our stuff. And in fact, it wasn't but last week that I walked into my, I came to my office and I noticed that there was a student, a white student, sitting there using my computer. So we gotta talk about this, he said. We can't deny, we can't minimize it. We need to talk about it. We have to face it because it's real. And if we try to look at it and say, explain it away, we're, we're doing all of ourselves a deep disservice. So when I use this example, which I do use quite regularly in training on diversity and power in organizations, the questions that I'll ask the group to talk about 
are, why is it hard for people to even believe this happens? Or let me qualify that. Why is it hard for some people to listen to this story and even believe that it's happening? And then the second question I ask is, are the students who barge into a faculty member's office and start using their papers, their computer, their workspace, are these students bad people? Are they bad people? So to discuss this topic of racism, sexism, and homophobia at work, I have a brilliant guest with me, and let me tell you a little bit about her. Her name is Terry Howard, and she is a senior director at FEI Behavioral Health. FEI is our prime sponsor here on the show as well. Now let me tell you what Terry does at FEI. She works with corporate clients to ensure that their organizations are prepared for, ready to respond to, and can recover from crisis incidents. And so she develops and, and facilitates drills and exercises that ensure that they're prepared. And when crises do occur, God forbid, she coordinates services for those involved. She delivers training on a variety of topics that include implicit bias, leadership development, bullying and harassment, teamwork, anger management, and workplace violence prevention. And she gives keynote presentations, facilitates workshops, and leads panel discussions on these and related subjects as well. Terry is a leader in the field. She's contributed to several international standards and guidelines on crisis management and workplace violence prevention, including those of ASIS, A-S-I-S, the Global Organization for Security Professionals, and the FBI. Welcome, Terry. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Ken. I'm very happy to be here. And I want to throw the question to you, one part of the question to you. Are the students who barge into faculty members' offices and start using their things, are they bad people? So I think we do a big disservice by thinking that they're bad people and not truly understanding uh, that underneath the layer of bad behavior may be a true uh, unawareness of the implicit or unconscious bias that these students may be having, which impacts, obviously, um, their perceptual filters in terms of how they view people uh, and situations. So, no, I don't think they are inherently bad, but what I do think is that they have a degree of unawareness uh, about uh, their own biases. Well, it's interesting that you said that because after I do this, the training that includes this vignette, it is very common for the people who organized the program to say to me sort of jokingly, I can't tell you how many people have come to me or come to other women and said, you know, I'm really sorry. I didn't even realize that I was just barging into your office, not even knocking on the door. So it's almost like they are at last paying attention to the filter that you mentioned and they're backing up maybe and catching themselves before they enact what they would have done if they weren't thinking. Does that fit? 
I, I think it absolutely fits, Ken, and I, uh, I too, have been in many uh, workshops and facilitated trainings where the light bulb finally goes off for people, like they don't realize that their behavior um, is actually a result of unconscious bias, uh, which is d- deeply rooted in how we were raised, are the experiences that we've had, and that only comes out when there's a safe environment that we have to talk about those things. Um, I, I think many people would uh, give the situation that you um, brought up in the beginning of uh, the show and dismiss that as bad behavior as opposed to digging a little bit deeper. So uh, I too have seen the epiphany uh, or the light bulb go off uh, in some participants when they recognize that these are things that we weren't necessarily aware of. And now that we are, we can make uh, changes in our behaviors, attitudes, and even in some cases, values uh, within the workplace to better and strengthen uh, relationships at work. Yeah, I've seen participants in these kinds of training conversations say, well, I think it's the way this latest generation who are now in college were raised, that they're just rude and they're demanding and it's all about them. And then we'll get into a conversation about, well, but why is there rudeness and why is there self-centeredness? Why is it set up in a way that they only show it to certain people and not others? Why wouldn't they be doing the same thing to their male faculty members? Why wouldn't they be doing the same thing to their faculty members who are white? And it really takes some thinking and some some reflecting to acknowledge that it really is a pattern that is all about these kinds of differences. I have to tell you, when I was present, when this event happened, I was taken aback greatly because I have such regard for this African-American leader in the field. It would be hard to imagine that anybody would approach him within our field, at the very least, with anything but due respect. And then you realize that that that's not the way the world operates, that if you have a certain color skin, if you have a certain gender, if you are obviously, let's say, of a, a gender variant identity, the the world is going to respond respond in ways that are not what you might imagine would be giving due respect. And And certainly I can tell you that this has been a process of development for me as a white man when I started my family therapy training, which was all about looking at human interactions within the frame of difference and power. It was very challenging. It was very challenging for me to be told things like, well, you've been reading all these so-called authorities in the field, but they're all white, aren't they? They're all white men. They're Freud and the young and they're Erickson and and so on and so forth. Where are the voices of color? Where are the people who speak from a different standpoint? And it was such an eye-opening experience. And it was such an eye-opening experience to look at the ways that I presume 
to have more to say, to be taken with great seriousness, all those kinds of things that many people absolutely could not take for granted. I think biologically, uh, Ken, we're just hardwired to prefer people who look like us, sound like us, and share our interests, right? Um, And what happens as a result of that is this social kind of categorization um, whereby uh, we not only routinely but also rapidly sort people into groups, right? Uh, And again, all of that's happening in our uh, in our subconscious. Uh, we're not even aware that we're doing that. Um, but I think, you know, it's our neurology, actually, that's taking us to uh, the brink of bias and, as a result of that, poor decision-making. Um, so now that you are aware, now that it's come to your conscious being, um, maybe about the privileged uh, role that you've taken on, it's much um, easier for you then to um, change behavior or change perception um, to impact your behavior when you are uh, with someone who's not like you, who doesn't sound like you, or even who uh, shares your interests. So um, I think it really does come down to uh, an unconscious state that people don't even realize they're in in their waking lives at work. So it's interesting to me that you said it comes down to in some ways, the way that we're wired biologically, neurologically. Do you think that we start out that way or do you think that those connections are built over time? And what I mean by that, do you think that we start out preferring and noticing people who look more like us, who have the same skin color, have the same gender? Or do you think it's that we grow up in a world in which we learn through going to school and being taught the names of the people who quote unquote mattered in history and science and sports and art and we note that those people look a certain way that they have a certain gender that they seem to have a sex a certain sexual orientation and it gets wired over time is that what you think or do you think that it's more deeply biological than that Uh, I think it's a combination of both um, because I think we are born into um, a a world that provides us with uh, some experiences right from uh, birth, right? So uh, who your parents are, how you're um, uh, brought up, uh, the friends your parents have, the people that you have around you is shaping um, that unconscious bias right away. However, I do think that uh, from a society uh, perspective, we are also given messages uh, through the media, um, through um, uh, literature um, that also is fortifying that or actually um, rebelling against um, how we're brought up. And I think each individual takes a journey on um, then structuring those perceptions to have a perspective of the world and the people that are in it. 
I think we're saying the same thing. We're just coming at it from a little bit yep, different angles. And and mm-hmm. so as I was talking about, if I had if I had followed the work of Eric Erickson, who who outlined these developmental stages, quote unquote normal developmental stages, and then you realize that his theory was based on looking at white male children of middle or upper class status, that if if that's your frame and then you're looking at people who come from a different cultural starting point, a different cultural group, and their developmental their developmental sequence looks different, it's very important not to impose the one that we started from with, with Erickson. And it's very important, as I was told, to do some reading. So, for example, to read the work of people like Cornell West and Bell Hooks and others who are going to talk to us about the meaning of relationship and the meaning of of love from alternate cultural frames and so it's this is this is challenging and and i wonder if we can as we get ready to to take a break and we're gonna have to take a break in just a minute i wonder if we can move into a conversation about privilege about privilege and entitlement, what they look like. And then perhaps from there, we'll also talk about how we can, if this is challenging for us, if this is hard to to claim for ourselves, because we all have privileges, then how do we manage to do it? How do we how do we face the difficult feelings and 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 look at the reality. So we're going to stop here for a break and we'll be back in just a few moments. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's GreenGateLeadership.com. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI, the workforce resilience expert, is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. 
If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at 1-800-987-1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI, the workforce resilience experts. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Welcome back. I'm talking with Terry Howard. She is a senior director at FEI Behavioral Health. And you can learn more about her business at www.feinet.com. So we want to talk just a little bit about privilege. What is privilege? How do you know you've got it? Is it hard to recognize? And and just what? why is it important? Why is it important to even talk about this word? And, I, and I'll ask Terry, what's your definition for privilege? I think when I think of uh, privilege, I think of uh, individuals who believe they are deserving of special treatment. Okay. Uh, that they're entitled usually uh, is associated to some degree of privilege. It's it's interesting that you say that because because from my perspective, and this may well reflect our life experiences, our differences, in that I feel like privilege is the expectation that you're going to be treated reasonably, that you're going to be treated fairly. And I'll give you a really quick example. So there is a situation that unfolded this past week near where I live. So I live in in Massachusetts, not too far from Northampton, Amherst. And there was a young woman, young African-American woman who was relaxing, having lunch in a public space in one of the dorms, I believe, at Smith College. Smith College is in Northampton. And a staff person called the campus police and told them that she that there was a person who didn't seem like they belong there. And the police came and the young woman was distraught, absolutely distraught because she's a student there. She was relaxing on a break. She was she was having her lunch. And I know, like I think about that kind of stuff and I'm like that would never happen to me. Never ever. And I and I wouldn't expect it to. And yet it's really a privilege that that would never happen to me because it happens to a lot of other people, obviously. Interesting that you say that, and perhaps it's, um, I, I think this is a great example of uh, viewing something through different lenses, right? Yeah. So yeah. I I sit here as a, an African-American woman and mm-hmm. say, 
privilege means that you expect special uh, treatment as opposed to being treated fairly, um, perhaps from my own lens and experiences having grown up and seen other people um, acquire um, something that maybe I wasn't. And so when I think of privilege, I often think of, again, my own experiences with respect to that. Yeah, I'll I'll give you another example. When I go to a meeting and I am not known to the people there, so maybe I'm going to be coming to a meeting where there's a number of people who are collaborating, I would not expect to be asked to take notes. I would not expect to be asked whether I brought refreshments. And I know from female colleague stories that that is, in fact, a privilege, that that's a male privilege. And that absolutely is. And and that's the kind of thing that happens at work. And so when we're talking about racism, sexism, and homophobia, we are not talking for the most part, although pretty horrible things are in fact done at the workplace, we're not talking about overt assaults. We're not talking about about calling names and insults and, and doing things that are overtly violent. We're talking about these smaller, what are sometimes called microaggressions, right, or micro-exclusions that happen all the time. Yeah, Ken, an interesting example that I can uh, bring to the conversation today. I happen to have been doing some climate survey uh, interviews um, uh, last week for uh, a very large um, uh, company and uh, was interviewing the women who consistently uh, talked about um, a manager who dismisses them in meetings. So this was uh, four different women uh, who don't work in the same department who had the same feedback about the fact that um, a uh, male uh, a white male manager, um, often when they would give their opinion, dismiss, dismisses their opinion and, in fact, went further um, to say when the last female was hired, he said, I'm really glad to finally have some women around here. Maybe uh, you guys can keep this place clean and organized. Wow. These are master degree level professionals uh, who have taken on a role in um, uh, middle management, and this is what their uh, leadership, this is how their leadership is communicating to them. That, to me, is privilege. Yep, as though they are, they are the cleanup crew. They are okay. the cleanup crew. I I have another story, and this comes from the experience of being in courtrooms. So a while back, I was part of a group that worked with men who batter and their partners would work with them in separate groups. And this institute would often have staff people who would come to the court when a case was being heard, when a domestic violence case was being heard. And so there were a faculty of all different 
backgrounds. There were staff of all different backgrounds. And what became evident if is that if there were two people of color and one or more white people in the group who were at the court that day in the courtroom, the judge who was hearing the cases would say, oh, it's, it's a good thing we have people from the Institute, the Family Institute here today. We'd like to get their input on this particular case. And they would be asked to speak for a moment about how the family was doing. If just the people of color who were on staff, just people of color from the Institute were there, the judge would say, it's a shame that there are no staff from the Institute, from the Family Institute here today. And the staff of color would then have to raise their hand and identify themselves and say, in fact, we are here. So they were actually invisible to the judges unless there was a white staff person among them. It's just very striking, very striking. So the mm-hmm. whole idea of invisibility even. Now, let me, let me just back up for a second and, and perhaps we can talk about what if you're listening to this and you are either one, disbelieving, or two, extremely uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe Terry, we can talk about, about how people might manage that or might approach that because it's very likely happening. This is hard stuff to talk about. I would first start off by saying if there is uh, a listener uh, to today's show that's feeling a little bit of discomfort, that's a good thing. Uh, that means this has given you cause to pause and actually think about the possibility um, and understanding uh, from other someone else's perspective uh, what we're talking about today. So on one level, I would be encouraged by someone's discomfort. Um, in terms of somebody not believing um, what uh, we're talking about today, I guess I would ask them to simply um, recall an incident in their early life uh, where they may have felt different from people around them and think about what happened and how they felt and how that particular incident may have influences, influenced uh, the choices that they made um, or make uh, today. And if you can do that in an honest and true world way, I think you may be able to start feeling the discomfort as well. That's that's great. And and I have to say from my own experience, it is it is hard when you first begin looking at this stuff honestly and and I shouldn't even say first begin looking at it. I, I think it's a lifelong project. It certainly will be for me. It's hard not to sometimes almost get paralyzed by feelings of guilt and and shame that this is this is going on and that somehow I'm part of the group that's benefiting from it. And, and my, my thoughts, which I, which I add on to yours are that you just keep, you just keep pushing through and saying that the, the path 
can only be the only path is forward. The only path is forward because the path backward is one to denial and it's one to minimizing. And we're probably going to enact more of these oppressive patterns if we're not paying attention. And I can tell you that in my work, it had it has become part of my work to notice the the importance if I'm facilitating a a training session or a workshop to make sure I'm noticing how much time people of people across the spectrum of difference are getting in the conversation when they speak am I acknowledging that what they have to say with the same kind of significance Am I making sure that there is an invitation for people to speak who seem a bit reticent to invite them to, or if they say a little bit to ask that they say more? Because I live, I live this life of being a white male and somebody who has experienced a lot of privilege through my education and work experience. And so I feel like I always got to watch myself, always, about the impressions I'm drawing and the ways that I'm interacting with others. It's a lifelong project. I think you don't even need to be a member of the um, privileged uh, group, if you will, to not um, understand uh, that we all have... Uh, implicit bias, and that all of that converges. If you have a diverse work group um, in the workplace, and so I think it is incumbent upon us um, to uh, get real with each other and acknowledge that we have these biases, whether it's because of privilege or not. We still categorize people uh, and based on those categories we make recruitment decisions, hiring decisions, performance review decisions, uh, how we market. Um, I think that all uh, plays a part in the workplace. Um, uh, who we decide to mentor, um, all of those key pieces are very real and uh, may be impacted by the lens um, by which we see the world, Ken. I think that's I think that's so important. We are a mix of many identities, and in some ways we are privileged, and in other ways we are on the downside of the privilege. We are the people who have less power, and I, I do I I think it's so easy for the most part to look at the ways that we are not being privileged, that we're, we're perhaps being oppressed, but it's really hard to, to look at the ways that, that we actually have the advantage. And, and in organizations, level is an extremely important determinant of whether or not you have privilege. And I think what you said is is really important. They're always paying attention to the whole balance of of identities that that make us up, that make us up. 
And so one of the I can I can tell another quick story, and that is that I did a, a program at a location that is very much a white location. It was actually in in Minneapolis, and three African American women approached me after the session, and one of them told the story about how she approached her boss, who was a white woman, and invited her to read an article. And the article was written by a gentleman, an African-American gentleman, who she had just seen speak recently. And the article was called Why Blacks Leave. And her boss at first was very nervous and, in fact, didn't even want to talk about it, took the article politely, but didn't even want to talk about it. But you fast forward, and this woman, incredibly courageous in her efforts, just was very, very persistent. And over time, and over time, her boss invite being invited into various diversity events and, and deciding to open up and learn and listen, became an extraordinary advocate for people of all all differences and and was able to use her privilege in many ways to to invite other people into her work group and and into a place that 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 really was more fair than what it might have been had she stayed in this place of sort of blindness and denying and I th- that that gives me hope <laughs> uh, that um, one instead of um, fighting unconscious bias when it rears its head, that we take it as an opportunity um, to teach and create awareness and um, create change within an organization. And that's what it's all about: creating change and. And creating an organization that values everybody so that there are there are these rich perspectives coming together and creating the best results. So we're going to take another break and we'll be back in just a few moments. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI. The Workforce Resilience Expert is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at one 800 987 1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI, the workforce resilience experts. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects. 
mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's GreenGateLeadership.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. Welcome back. We're talking with Terry Howard, who is Senior Director at FEI Behavioral Health. And we're talking about racism, sexism, homophobia, and other patterns of bias in the workplace. And Terry and I were just talking about how difficult it is to go into a conversation like this with any depth, because the conversation is so broad. There's just... There's so much content and we have so little time. So we decided that we're going to talk just a little bit about this question of if we're, if we are open to looking at ourselves and looking at our bias and looking at our privilege, where do we go? How do we learn more? How do we challenge ourselves? And what are the benefits of that? And we just open that question a tiny bit before break, but we want to use our remaining time to see if we can just go a little farther with it. So Terry, what are some of your ideas for the people listening? Well, again, I'm going to go back to retraining the unconscious mind, right? So uh, if we can develop a capacity to use a flashlight, if you will, on ourselves um, to really help identify bias, um, I think it will help us uh, appropriately act on it. and redirect our beliefs. So instead of suppressing them, try to understand and redirect them. Um, I think it's okay to explore this awkwardness um, by really asking ourselves, you know, what's triggering me in any particular situation? Um, But also to create opportunities for exposure. Um, I mentioned that, you know, at first glance, we typically like to be around people who look like us, sound like us. Um, And so I say challenge yourself to meet someone who doesn't look like you, sound like you. Uh, Invite um, yourself to be a part of 
uh, an event, an outing, or even a discussion with others. Uh, that may be as simple as inviting someone who you don't typically eat lunch with to have lunch and share a conversation. That is a, a, a very um, sh- a quick, short way to begin the process of a reawakening of your unconscious bias. I, I think those are, those are great ideas. And if you work in a company that has events, that has diversity events, that has what are sometimes called affinity groups or business resource groups, it's a great idea to get involved with them and to join and to be part of them and to, in that way, organically get closer to people who may be coming from a different background than, than you are you're comfortable with or you're certainly not, you may not be part of these, these kinds of collectives and it's ready-made, ready-made. I also think that it's a great idea to do some reading and there's a lot that is out there. So Tim Wise and his last name is spelled wise, like a wise owl, W-I-S-E, has written a number of books for white people to look at the experience of whiteness. And one of them is called White Like Me. He has others. Bell Hooks, who I mentioned earlier, has written also a tremendous number of books, one of which is Feminism is for Everybody. And many others. She has treatises on love, the meaning of love, absolutely beautiful. Cornell West, who you probably have heard of before and perhaps heard him speak, has written a classic called Race Matters and many others as well. And so there's there's just a whole bunch of different books available. Arundhati Roy is another brilliant writer and speaker. If you look online, you can find all kinds of books that would be great to read to expand your horizons and understand different experiences. You can certainly get in touch with me after the show and I'll direct you to some other possibilities. But it's all about learning and connecting. And I'll also suggest that you look into the websites of movements that are visible today. So look into Me Too, hashtag Me Too. Look into Black Lives Matter. It's very educational to understand the, the ideas and the missions of these kinds of organizations because they are all about creating fairness and safety for everybody, everybody. This idea that that when one group gains fairness, everybody gains fairness as gains more fairness as well, I think is very, very important. There's this old idea that that tends to frighten people when they think about movements for social change. They tend to think of them in a power over way so that if, women were gaining are gaining power then there are some men who will feel like that must mean that men are losing power if people of color are gaining power there are those who might feel that that means that white people are losing power if you think of the 
the way that power is applied differently and think of it as power with that power is all about responsibility for good things for everybody taking responsibility to help everybody be successful and everybody to be safe and everybody to be healthy then when one group is gaining power every other group is gaining power as well what's good for for one community is good for everybody and those are some ideas terry i want to ask you what are some additional thoughts that you have, maybe just for a couple minutes before before we come to our close? Well, I would say that our focus um, today um, uh, has been a lot on the individual, but I think the organization, so leadership, management of an organization, also needs to think about this in terms of the overall culture. So what is your process for uh, recruitment and uh, hiring people. Uh, I know that many companies have gone through um, reprogramming, if you will, how the interview process works. So instead of sending the resume of a candidate to a uh, manager uh, to interview, they will send the resume with the name and address address of the candidate redacted so that you don't know, um, that you can't make assumptions based on a person's name or where they live. This begins to start training our mind uh, differently. Um, So there's, there's many organizational changes that we can put into place. How about making um, diversity and inclusion um, a uh, goal for the company and using it as an indicator for performance evaluations? I mean, these are things that uh, companies that have a high degree of awareness and appreciation for diversity and inclusion um, have begun to institute to reshape the culture. So uh, we have individuals, obviously, that make up an organization, but leadership can take um, a lead on this as well. And, you know, there are many times I've seen there's a hiring effort and the people who are hiring will say, we have tried so hard to find a diverse slate but we really haven't had great success with that. What are your uh, thoughts on that? Have you seen that happen as well? And, and, I'll, and I'll also just say that there are some organizations who simply won't accept that. They will, they will make sure that they find qualified candidates across the spectrum of diversity before starting the interview process. Uh, so again, if, if you are in an organization that embraces having diverse talent, understanding that uh, when, when I typically look at the list of great places to work, one of the key factors is it's a diverse workforce, right? Or a yep. diversity of talent or diversity of, of uh, thought. 
um, and so on. And so what I would say to someone who says we've tried to recruit uh, diverse candidates, I would probably suggest that they haven't tried hard enough, that there are (laughs) qualified, high potential people out here um, that uh, uh, are worth uh, looking for uh, through recruitment practices. So um, I, I would just suggest uh, trying harder. Keep trying, keep trying. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a great privilege to speak with you, Terry. Terry Howard is Senior Director at FEI Behavioral Health. You can learn more about their organization at www.feinet.com. Fred Rogers said, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. By the way, there's a new movie that is out, I believe, about Mr. Rogers. And I think that he was absolutely brilliant in his simple statements about what makes for a good life and what makes for good communities. But I like to quote him, and I'll say it again, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. If we can talk about these things, we can get to a place that is going to be more healthy for all of us. So my wish is that together we're going to continue to break silences and talk about important things that too frequently go unsaid. And it's in those kinds of new places that we find solutions together where necessary and move forward at least with more clarity and calm. So join us next week. We're going to be talking with two guests. It is It is, again, an opportunity to talk with guests from FEI. We're going to be talking with Randy Kratz and Michael McCafferty, both of whom are senior account managers at FEI. Our topic will be when your boss sucks. So please join us for that conversation. I'm Ken Dolan-Delvecchio. You've been listening to Work Life Confidential. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Randall Libero, and our engineer, Josh. And thank you so much for being with us. We'll look forward to our conversation next week. Thank you for listening to Work Life Confidential with Ken Dolan-Delvecchio. We hope you've taken a bit of wisdom from today's program that will help you at work and home. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have an outstanding week.